Welcome to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lenzi and Kim Simone, exploring all things wine with you. You can find us on Facebook at The Wonderful World of Wine. Hi, folks. Welcome to The Wonderful World of Wine. Today, we are going to be talking about environmentally friendly wines. And is the wine in your glass environmentally friendly? And how are you going to know? Hi, Mark. Hi, Kim. This article was in the Washington Post. And to me, it was all about a sustainable wine. Do you shop looking for environmentally friendly wines, Kim? Uh, Not so much. But it seems like this is a trend in the greater food world, I would say. You know, not just beverages, but people really do seem to be paying attention to the impact of the food production, uh, where their food is coming from, how far does it have to travel. We see this sustainability movement, we see this eat local movement, and I think it's only natural that this would extend uh, to our beverages as well. So it's a a demand to know what is in a product and a a means to find out if they're actually controlling Right, and I think it's a couple of things. You know, it's not just is the food or the beverage being produced in a way that isn't having a harmful impact on the environment as far as pesticide usage, water usage, things like that, but then also the health effects of those things on the food product itself that we then consume. So I feel like it's a kind of a a couple of different things and people might be more concerned about one aspect of it and somebody else might be concerned about a different aspect of it, but it's interesting to see kind of all of these things coming together in this idea of sustainability. And many times you'll see sustainable wines grouped with organic or biodynamic wines. Mm-hmm. And they, they're similar, but sustainable is not a regulated uh, by the government term. Right. But there are many countries or regions that want all the growers to become sustainable. So some of the things behind it are environmental, energy, labor. Years ago, South Africa, which was big in sustainable wines, their whole thing was fair trade movement. So I guess it's a feel-good thing about environment. Right. And well, I think... You know, a lot of people at the end of the day, consumers really want fewer chemicals in their wines and they want less of an impact on the environment from the production. And I'm not saying it's everybody, but people to people whom this is an important factor. I think that that's what they're looking for. And one thing that I think is sort of key in this whole movement is this idea of third party certification. So you can slap the word natural on anything and there is absolutely nothing governing what what that means. So if you have a system like we have with the USDA organic system where there is a separate group coming in and saying, yes, you you do qualify for organic, you can put that on your label. It's a very different thing than just using like marketing terms to get somebody to buy your product. Yeah. So somebody's checking up on them that they are actually doing what they're saying they're doing environmental or energy wise. One of the things I like about this is that they have the option of being organic or biodynamic dynamic, but can go back if they need to. So that's why they'll say sustainable because right. at times we'll be organic, but if sometimes we have to use something, we're not. So we're not going to be certified organic, but we will say we do our best to protect the environment. And I think one thing that's important for people to remember, you might not necessarily think when you're drinking that glass of wine, this is an agricultural product. This is something that is still subject to the vagaries of weather, forest fires, and you know things that sometimes are beyond the realm of human control. So if you 
have an organic winery and then there's something that happens in nature or, you know, in your vineyard that you you can't help, it's very possible that those farmers, that winemaker could lose that entire crop. So I, I think it's good to have this little bit of wiggle room. It's it's all well and good to say that, you know, you're going to do 100% organic and you're not going to do this and you're not going to do that. But if the difference is you don't have a crop at the end of that season, that makes it very difficult for people to go into this as their job. And it's not an easy process either. They have to file and show that they're saving water, they're saving energy. Um, it's not just in, the other environmental things are that might be the product they use in the labels or the capsules or the mm-hmm. corks. So there's a lot to it. And there are regions that are trying to go all sustainable. Uh, Sonoma is pushing for all their wineries to be uh, sustainable. And in the world, I mentioned earlier about South Africa, I believe South Africa and New Zealand are both 100% sustainable countries, which I thought was very interesting. Wow. Uh, the, the one that really stood out to me as as something very interesting and something different is the subregion of San Emilion in Bordeaux. And what is uh, interesting about this is because for a lot of the French wine regions, the Italian wine regions, they have more, they have stricter rules that the winemakers have to follow in order to be able to put the name of the place that the grapes come from on the label. So European wines overall are named more by the place that they come from than the grape variety that they are made from. And if you want to label your wine as coming from that particular area, there are a number of bullet point rules that you have to follow. But now that we've got these regions that are working this type of certification into their rule structure, so they won't even in the future be able to call their wine San Emilion unless they follow this sustainable practice. So I thought that that was really interesting. You know, it's like it's adding another layer. And I feel like it shows the commitment too. it's saying, okay, our region is really behind this movement. And it's very important to us. And we're going to put all of our eggs in one basket and say, okay, if you want to call your wine from this region, then you have to do this, 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 and this. And we're really standing behind it. I love the whole idea about the sustainable. I just don't see consumers asking about it. They'll ask organic or sulfite free, but they're not coming in looking for sustainable. And I actually have a section of sustainable wines, but no real call for people looking for it. Well, 20 years ago, people weren't looking for organic either. Yeah, it's true. So, you know, it's possible that it's moving in this direction. Some of the other, I, I wouldn't call them sustainable, but I guess they're related to the environment. You you see on labels something that says salmon safe. Have you ever seen this, Kim, where I Oregon have. wineries are? Yeah, wineries in Oregon and Washington, there are a number of different certification agencies concerned with, a lot of it has to do with water usage and cleanliness of waterways. So there are at least two that I can think of off the top of my head where there are these outside organizations that will go in and will make sure that the wineries are doing things the right way to protect the waterways and as an extension then protect all the wildlife in that area as well. So there does seem to be and have has there has been this push in those states to really get behind this. Yeah, so how will you know when you buy a wine if it is any part of the sustainable society? There's all different stickers they use or certifying agents that they'll use. Just remember they're independent of each certifying organization. It's not government regulated. Right.
You're listening to The Wonderful World of Wine. We are your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you would like to get more information about Kim, please go to her website at vinitaswineworks.com. If you would like to get more information about myself, please go to franklinliquors.com. Our next topic is from the San Francisco Chronicle, and it's been in the news a lot lately, is smoke getting on grapes, which they call smoke taint. What is your take on this article? I think that this is a fascinating little bit of science. And when I've been talking to people about wine over the last couple of uh, couple of months since the uh, wildfires in California, I've been getting lots of questions from people about the vintage and, oh, is the vintage ruined? And what happens with the grapes that were on the vines when there were fires and, and all this stuff? So this is a hot topic of conversation for a lot of people who are concerned about wine um, and concerned about the wineries in California. So what was interesting to me about this article was that it really dug a little bit deeper into the science behind this concept of smoke taint, which just very shortly is the flavor and smell of smoke that can be transferred from the grapes into the finished wine. And it, it, this is it's a relatively new science of trying to determine if this taint is even present. Um, and what the chemicals are involved. So there's been some experimentation over the last couple of years about like how much smoke exposure a grape needs to have, one point in its life, does it transfer into the finished wine and all this stuff. So it, it, it's something that's top of mind for a lot of people right now. I thought it was interesting that they, they gave a story about how one of the bigger corporations, Constellation, buys. So obviously they don't grow all their own grapes, so they have to source them from small producers or small farmers. And when smoke is on them, they'll actually take test them. So they'll go to a farm and say, oh, we want how much, whatever, Pinot Grigio. When it comes time to harvest it, if that producer or the grower gives them grapes and they detect this smoke taint on it, they refuse the crop. Mm -hmm. So now if the farmer doesn't have insurance, he's not guaranteed any sales. So that was an interesting look at how it affects the little guy from big production companies. And that's that was really a main point in this is that the folks that are being hurt the, the most because of these wildfires in California and and it's not just California, you know, there were major wildfires in Spain and in Portugal. And in years previous, Australia has really been hit hard uh, by some of these disasters. And it's really, it's the little guy. It's the small grower who is not making their own wine. And they their primary business is that they grow grapes that they then sell to bigger groups that then make the wine and label it in different ways and things like that. So it's, yeah, it's, it's tough because you're talking about farmers and you're talking about small family farms and these people who are trying to sell their products at the end of the day that now has this potential problem with it. And you talked about the, the science part of it, Kim. They, they had mentioned eight compounds that are found in fire that can get on the grapes. Mm-hmm. But two of them are actually found if a wine is put in a toasted oak barrel. Right. So, so that, was, that was really interesting. The other point they made of, of two of the compounds, if they bind with sugar, it can be almost non-detectable right. until it's too late. So what was your kind of understanding what they meant by that? So this this is... This is kind of new science. You know, there's the there are these volatile chemicals, chemical compounds in smoke. So they're in the air. So when there's a fire and the air is very smoky, 
smoky and the smoke lands on the grapes, the grape skins can actually absorb some of these chemical compounds from the smoke. And some of them will stay in the skin. Some could be transferred to the juice, but I think that they still haven't really figured out a great testing mechanism because there are some compounds that will just stay in the skins and you can detect them when they're just in the grape. But then there are other things that need a little bit of time, whether it's in the presence of alcohol, whether they have to go through the process of fermentation and then with the different proteins and with the different sugars and the different acids, some of them will stay noticeable, some of them will get worse, and then some of them will will bind with other compounds in the juice or in the wine and not be detectable at all. So it's it's still sort of sort of sketchy. And so I... they can pick the grape, very little detected of the smoke. Mm-hmm. Then they ferment it. And when it turns to alcohol, the sugars, they, it changes something that they cannot be detected right. more. Right. So that's that's interesting. And, and it might be detected it. more as an older wine. So say it's in bottle for two years, then it might be more apparent than if it was a just bottled wine. So there's, uh, yeah, there's some debate out there about the, how when these big corporations that are buying the wines are just checking the levels in the grapes themselves, that might not be a really good indicator of what the finished wine is going to taste like or vice versa. You know, you might not be able to detect it in the grape, but then later on after the wine has already been, after the grapes have already been made into wine and you've gone through that entire winemaking process, then maybe the problems will show up. So it's a little dicey right now, it sounds like. And Kim, how would you explain to a wine drinker, there are, I mean, there are some wines, the profile is a little smoke flavor to it. So how would you explain to someone that is a good characteristic of that wine. It's not something that was evolved with smoke taint. Mm, so there are certain grape varieties that do carry this aroma and taste signature, the big one being Syrah. Um, so sometimes, um, and Syrah in particular, like from France, will have, it, it really, it's it's smoky, but there's sometimes a little bit of a meaty element too. So it's almost like a whiff of bacon or, or something like that. And there are all these sort of funky smells and funky flavors that sometimes you wouldn't necessarily associate with a product that's made from fruit like leather and and again the sort of bacony gamey smoky but in small quantities they're very very pleasant but we're talking at this level that it would be overpowering the flavor of the fruit so you're talking more along the lines of it smelling and tasting like an ashtray as opposed to it smelling and tasting like a little bit of bacon on your sandwich and I would think they, if they've invested a lot of money in the crop and they need volume, they could do something to it to take that away chemically. And I think know? there are methods, but the problem... They don't want to deal with that, it. I don't think it's that they want to deal with it. It's that when you're fining and filtering a wine, you have to be very, very careful that you're only removing the things that you want to remove. You could strip a wine of all of its smokiness, but you might be eliminating a whole bunch of other flavor compounds that are positive and that are meant to be there. It's like when winemakers you know, are trying to manipulate wine to make a lower alcohol wine. It's like, well, yes, you know, you can take out some of the wine by art- uh, some of the alcohol by artificial methods, but then you're also stripping out a lot of the flavor too. So I think that it gets a little concerning when you're trying to use all these other methods to, to get a, a smell or a flavor that is unpleasant out of the wine because then you are left with a little bit of a, a dull flavorless wine. I find you were talking about Syrah grape, you get that smoky profile. But I find myself, every time I taste some red fruit from Lodi, I am 
I detect smoke really? on my palate so much. It kind of turns me off from the whole region, but that's just my style. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just, I think that's interesting when people ask how you detect smoke yeah. in a wine, but there's different levels. So there's a good and a bad, but some people might like that. Right, exactly. It's all it's all individual to you. Like there are some some wines that have more of like that. It's a little bit smoky, but it's also kind of earthy. And th- those two kind of go hand in hand where I feel like a little bit can be fine, but too much is just a little overwhelming. Another side note on the smoke taint. I was reading recently where vineyards that are located next to in California, now marijuana is big crop mm-hmm. production. So there's this whole thing about the marijuana tainting the grapes because the oil is sure. blowing on the vineyards. So that's another whole thing. So you can imagine if a marijuana field catches on fire. Oh my what, goodness. What you'd be getting in there. So well, you, more to follow on that. And you get the same thing out of Australia with all the eucalyptus trees and the eucalyptus oil is volatile. So that goes through the air and that lands on the grapes. So that is why a lot of Syrah and Cabernet from Australia has this sort of uniquely medicinal eucalyptus-y kind of a, a flavor to it. So this is this is a real thing. And uh, don't, you know, don't discount the idea that there are smoke-tainted grapes out there. But I, I think that the jury is still out a little bit and we will see once these once this vintage is uh, is in bottle and it and it hits the shelves Welcome back to the wonderful world of wine. We are your hosts, Kim Simone and Mark Lenzi. You can find me on the internet at vinitaswineworks.com and you can find Mark at franklinliquors.com. Right now, we are going to talk about something near and dear to my heart, which is food and wine pairings. And the specific topic of this one was what wines to pair with Thai food. This is an article that came out of Wine Folly, my probably favorite wine website for learning about wine. Mark, uh, do you have any particular favorite foods that you uh, like to pair with wine from uh, from Thai cuisine? Well, this is why you're here, Kim. <laughs> honestly, unless Fruity Pebbles are Thai food, I have not had any Thai food. Honestly. No. I've never tried it. Uh, Chinese, maybe at some one point I did have experiment with some, but I've never honestly Oh, I got to bring you some takeout. Yeah. This will be I, fun. You give me the profile and I'll, I'll okay. match a wine to it. How's What's that? pretty cool about uh, Thai food is that it's, it's all about balance. And we talk about balance in wine all the time. And we talk about balancing food and wine all the time when you're talking about pairing things together. And Thai cuisine really has this lovely, I guess you could call it synergy of sweet and spicy and salty and savory and fruity, all of these things kind of wrapped up together. And in order for a dish to be in balance, it kind of has to have all of these things. And I think that that makes it a nice partner for wine because there are a number of different wines that will work with spicy food, you know, a number of different wines that'll work with sweet food foods. And when you put them all together and then experiment with uh, mostly whites, I would say, you you get some really interesting flavor combinations. So do you try or do you know dishes that are specifically more sweetness than more spiciness on Thai food? Um, sometimes. I mean, I think that the, the spice cap factor can be mitigated a little bit by, you know, when you go to your favorite Thai restaurant and they ask if you want it mild or you want it medium or you want it hot. You know, a lot of them will have a little bit of spiciness to them and then you can get the more hot but something like pad thai, which is, is tends to be the dish that most people uh, begin with when they start to experiment with this cuisine, really doesn't have a lot of heat to it at all. Some um, it's noodles and there's peanuts in there and some vegetables and usually some shrimp. So a general, generally it's a mild dish, and that is the kind of thing that really pairs with a whole variety of white wines. But one that was specifically brought up in this wine folly article was riesling, and riesling really goes with a whole a whole variety of Asian inspired 
inspired dishes because if you have that little bit of heat to it and then you balance it with a Riesling that maybe is just a little bit off dry, so it has just a touch of sweetness to it, that sweet and spicy really go very nicely with each other. did recognize a lot of the white varietals they're talking about, especially Riesling. To me, this is the ultimate Chinese food pairing mm-hmm. wine as well. So there was a lot of similarities, I thought, in the wines chosen for Thai food and Chinese food. Right. So, you know, Riesling was mentioned a number of times. Something like Chenin Blanc, which can be made in dry or slightly sweet styles, is also a fantastic match. And then and then rosé as well. So, I mean, I feel like rosé kind of goes with everything. So rosé goes with a lot of different foods. Sparkling wine, whether it's dry or whether it's sweet, is very, very versatile for a number of different cuisines, including this one. I think what's one thing that is very important when you are talking about foods that have a fair bit of spiciness to them, make sure that you are not going with a really high alcohol wine because you'll have the burn of the food and you'll have the burn of the alcohol in the wine and they will just exacerbate each other. So the the spiciness and the food, while pleasant, can really make the wine taste too hot and too alcoholic. So keep an eye on the alcohol level, I would say. I like the Chenin Blanc. Chenin Blanc to pair with food. Um, it's just a phenomenal food wine. It has yeah. floral character to it. They did mention Pinot Grigio and I'm thinking more of a Pinot Gris with a more fruity than a more like bright or acidic I would Pinot agree. Grigio. I would agree. You know, go with a Pinot Gris from Alsace in France or a Pinot Gris from Oregon would be lovely. And I've done that before and it does. It's one of those it works. It doesn't make you go wow, this is a fantastic pairing, but it's really, it's just nice. It's it's refreshing and it makes some of the fruity flavors of the food jump a little bit, especially if you have something that has, you know, mango or papaya or something like that in it. And then there are lots of spicy curry dishes in this cuisine. And some of them are more on the, I would say the richer, sweeter side where you've got coconut milk and you might have sweet potato and things like that. And then there are other ones that are spicy too, but are based more on vegetables. So you've got, you know, green curries that have a lot of herbal notes to them and yellow curries and things like that. You can pair with those rosés that might have a little bit of that herbaceous note to them or or that Pinot Grigio. Uh, Gruner Veltliner was also another grape variety that was brought up here. So play with the flavors. Think about what you're going to be ordering. Again, remember that if you have a much lighter dish, pair it with a lighter wine. If you've got something that's a little bit heavier, you know, maybe noodles and a brown sauce or something like that, that could stand up to a light red as well. Just keep an eye on that alcohol level. I like the sparkling. They mentioned sparkling rosé. You mentioned rosé, but I think there's something about the fizz that works well or the carbonation that works well with a spicy or a sweet food. So I thought that was a really great recommendation. And also crunchy. So, you know, anything with bubbles and anything fried are just fabulous in my book. Could be potato chips. It could be fried spring rolls. I don't care. If it's fried and crunchy, put it with some bubbles and uh, that makes my day. Now, here's where I disagree with you. Really? The red wine they mentioned pinot noir i would i just don't see this really i think this there is it's light bodied but it does have tannins and i think that does not go well with this i mean i've never had the food but Mm -hmm. i mean i wouldn't pair it with chinese food i wouldn't pair it with the spicy food and i wouldn't pair it with the sweet food well the one dish that they do mention as the partner for pinot noir in this article is something that i do regularly order it's a it's a noodle dish that has big wide flat noodles and it's a little bit of a richer sauce and especially if the meat you're doing it with is you're doing beef or if you're doing pork i i might need to try that next time because i can see that working what was the sauce was it uh i don't like know cream based no, no 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 it was more of a i don't want to say it's a meat sauce but well, then, then that would work so i'd like to kind of explore this kim where, where would you recommend locally that you get thai food so uh we go to pepper terrace in franklin for our thai food
food. So I would suggest uh, going over there. Thank you for listening to the wonderful world of wine. We've been your hosts, Mark Lindsay and Kim Simone. If you'd like to follow more information about us or this show, please go to Facebook and The Wonderful World of Wine. Wine, wine, wine.